Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Coast, the podcast of the Australian Coastal Society. I'm Gretchen Miller and in this episode we're headed to Adelaide where our guest lives and works. He's the Coast and Seas Team Leader for Green Adelaide, Tony Flaherty. Sometimes those piecemeal approaches, as long as they're thought out strategically, are really important. So it is a bit of a jigsaw approach. There is an overarching picture, but as well as some of these larger projects, a lot of it is built on individual contributions or working with the people who have faith in different organisations or local government and community that will follow through with the bigger picture. Tony's responsible for the establishment and running of a range of coastal on-ground works programs. He has a team of four Green Adelaide staff, three local government-hosted coastal conservation officers, and two hosted by BirdLife Australia. Tony has a long history of this work. In the 1990s, he was the South Australian Regional Coordinator and later the National Coordinator for the Non-Government Marine and Coastal Community Network. And in 2014, won the Unsung Hero Award by the Conservation Council of South Australia. So I guess that's the other importance to me personally of that networking approach. It's trying to work out how to get something done. The issue that everyone in conservation, no matter if it's coastal or biodiversity or river conservation, it's trying to restore and work in a landscape approach which needs decades. Tony carries with him a wealth of knowledge and we're going to be speaking across and through that knowledge about the benefits of working closely with coastal communities. Now, as I understand it, Tony, Green Adelaide evolved out of the old Natural Resource Management or the NRM Act and the NRM boards along the whole of the South Australian coast. Can you give us a brief overview of Green Adelaide and what it and the Coast and Seas team are there to do? So Green Adelaide was formed, as you said, through some legislation that was passed in 2019, the Landscape SA Act, and it created or changed a range of the old natural resource management arrangements. The bulk of our work is looking at coastal landscape restoration and that's in partnership with local councils. But Green Adelaide's been formed with a particular focus on the urban environment of Adelaide. And so with that, we've really tried to shift our focus. But for us uh, working on the coast and the team that we pulled together under the old uh, Natural Resources Management Board, the focus is, is still pretty much urban because that's where you know we're centred. We still work with the other boards on parts of the Flurio coast, south of Adelaide and parts north of Adelaide. And that's mainly because when you're talking about coastal conservation, you can't really just split it up into individual beaches or parts of the coast. We really have to manage it as, a, as an interconnected landscape. So to really enable that, from the very early days of starting the coastal program, uh, originally with the NRM board, we set up a range of coastal officers or coastal conservation officers and they're actually hosted through local councils. They're part of our team but they're hosted across a number of local councils so that the local government work we're doing is connected between the council areas as well and that really is based on a much earlier model that myself and a few other colleagues were part of in setting up 
the initial coast care program with the Australian government and the state. So it, it provides both that connection across council, but it also importantly means there are people on the ground that both the community councils and other agencies can go to to really get that support both for coastal conservation but also just the technical expertise that comes with having to roll out revegetation and, and other projects along the coast. So it's really clear and we'll discuss this more as we go along that coastal officers are embedded in the community and the councils but the coast and seas team brings them together. Yes, they're coordinated and supported by one of my team members and the outreach activities are also supported by our team. The budget itself is both coming from local councils that may be providing budget for projects for coastal conservation, but through the Green Adelaide Board and the Landscapes Boards, one of the important things that came out of those pieces of legislation is that the boards actually get a levy which is collected through local council rates that forms the operational funding that the boards can use. In Adelaide, we're very fortunate because we have a much larger council rates base. We have a reasonable operational budget. Across other regions of South Australia, that's not the case. So typically their coastal conservation works are very much dependent upon Australian government funding at the moment through the National Land Care Program. Tony, can you give us an example of some of the projects the Coast and Seas team is involved in? Yeah, so look, as well as working across almost 70 sites with local councils and parks on the physical restoration of and, and conservation of, of habitats, we do support a range of outreach activities and community group support. One of the things we started almost 12 years ago now was a Coastal Ambassadors Program and this has been run in partnership with Mike Bosley, who's very well known in Adelaide for his work on dolphin conservation and establishing the Adelaide Dolphin Sanctuary. But he's also got a very strong background in marine ecology. So we use Mike as a mentor for this program and a range of experts from across Adelaide provide their time to, we put out a call for the community each year for up to 20 people to apply and then they have to commit their own time to a range of about eight sessions where they learn about marine and coastal ecology. They get a chance to actually go out and snorkeling and kayaking and into the marine and coastal environments. But more importantly, what we do is through the, the goodwill of the many people involved and the experts, they get to learn firsthand from those people working on the coast. But we also make sure that that gives them some exposure to the different community groups and non-government organisations that are working in coastal marine environments. And so at the end of their course, when they graduate, they've got a real idea of to what projects or what groups they might want to help. But even if they don't do that, the idea is to create a network of people who understand what's needed to help conserve the coast so they can pass it on in their day-to-day -day life and, and other groups that they work with. And that's been really successful over the last decade or so. And just the enthusiasm that the end of these sessions and the actual relationships that you see these people starting to work as a team themselves and um, then start helping the other coastal groups along along the coast and, and some of the marine groups that we deal with. So uh, to me, that's, that's very good. You know, it, it's a model that I think... Um, you know, could be well adopted, you know, across a whole range of Australian cities. 
What's been really important as well is getting that commitment from the different professionals within agencies to donate their time for presentations and, and field trips. And that, again, often it's very easy to become quite tied up in your own work when you're working in a, a bureaucracy or an agency. And it gives people a good exposure to what some of the real current concerns are of community members. The range of both ages and backgrounds that we get of people participating in the program is very diverse. And more recently, the last few years, we've also set up a, a Youth Coastal Ambassador program, which is much shorter. You know, it's over a couple of days. What I'm reflecting on as you speak is two things. Firstly, the network nature of what you're doing. You're constantly inviting in and working with and for other organisations and the community, and you're constantly creating connections in this way. But also the longevity of it, that this model has come out of previous practice that you and others have been involved in for a long time and the interactive nature of how you're developing a really strong networked community. And you're constantly refining the methodology of how this all works. Well, look, I think a lot of this goes back to my misspent youth. But meant for me, mentoring was very important and I had a great opportunity to work with people who gave up their time. I used to do a lot of wildlife field work and work around the globe and Mentoring and being able to learn firsthand was very important. And in the 90s, I, I had the opportunity to work for an organisation called the Marine and Coastal Community Network, and that ran for a couple of decades, funded through the Australian government when they were funding other things like the Threatened Species Network and Coast Care Networks and, and those sorts of community-based networks. But again, the way that, that the Marine and Coastal Community Network was structured was very heavily built on mentoring the staff. And it was that work in trying to develop both industry and community networks over those two decades that I think really showed the value of that approach. As the natural resource management frameworks were being developed, we were tasked with actually writing a guide of how to integrate coast and marine programs into natural resource management frameworks because what we found historically was you know, often even in catchment management boards which you know tended to have a oceans to coast approach unless you actually have people with a passion or a knowledge and expertise in coast and marine within organizations it's something that tends to drop out many agencies and organizations will have a biodiversity component but often that will focus on terrestrial biodiversity. And again, unless you have people advocating and championing for the coast and its biodiversity, these things not intentionally fall behind, but it's, it's the allocation of resourcing. I'm wondering how you ensure these projects aren't piecemeal, that they all contribute to a larger narrative of coastal repair. What we've been able to achieve, or what I feel we've been able to achieve, within the Adelaide and Fleurio regions is because we've had that ability through having access to those those levy-based funds, which gives a bit of a commitment for operations over about three, at least a three-year time frame. But to provide, get some wins on the board that gives the people investing in that faith that you'll carry through. But it's really only after a couple of decades that we're seeing success in some programs. I have a question now about working 
collaboratively. Citizen science and citizen mobilisation is really important here, isn't it? Your aim is to educate your citizenry, the community, to want to be involved, but also to understand the environment they inhabit. It is. Look, I think there are a number of levels of understanding that we need and community is very important. It's also very important that people working in agencies and decision makers provided the best information to make those decisions. And I guess that's that's what we're trying to do. Citizen science is important, but you cannot do that lightly because good citizen science also takes long-term commitment. And I've had a number of projects where it, it is often easier to contract someone in or to get a, an expert and do a discrete piece of work or, or a survey work for a couple of years, as opposed to try and organise communities to, to do that work. I think what's some of the successful projects we have are ones that have been based nationally around our coastal bird conservation work with BirdLife Australia. So back in, in 2006, when I was just starting within the NRM area, BirdLife Australia through Dr Gronya Maguire and others were setting up a beach nesting bird conservation programs for hooded plover and other people in that organisation were trying to re-establish a national approach to shorebird monitoring. So we, we did invest with BirdLife back in 2008 to, to really look at how we can recover both things like hooded plover populations across our, our region, but also migratory shorebirds are one of those species that they're so broadly distributed across the landscape and the coast when they get down here that you know, unless you coordinate counting, both within a region but nationally, you really won't get a handle on what's happening over time. And again, the big aim of these sorts of projects is not only to try and help people understand what the conservation needs are to recover the populations over time but it's to understand the trends in population and again with resourcing with all of these things to try and understand the trend in the condition of the coastal habitats or of species in it you have to be investing for decades it needs that longer-term commitment and I think that's what's really important with some of those groups, that focus and that direction, but the dedication that's needed to coordinate hundreds of people across the nation. Well, there was a program here that, that we worked with BirdLife Australia. When we first started, we had a dozen volunteers. Now, 14, 15 years later, some of those volunteers are still with us, but we've got you know, over 70 volunteers. We, we started with about 12 pairs of, of hooded plovers now. The volunteers and staff and councils are monitoring about 32 pairs and that's partly because we've got more volunteers but it's actually because the success of working with local councils to manage disturbance to manage off-leash dogs on critical breeding territories for these birds we're actually seeing fledglings you know the, the number of fledglings come into new areas so hooded plovers are now nesting right in the heart of metropolitan adelaide which is pretty amazing. It's a beautiful success story and I think something else less tangible is is apparent in these sorts of projects and that is a kind of a the whole is more than the sum of its parts result 
within the community who comes to understand the hooded plover and to spread the word about the hooded plover and from being just like oh yeah that's just one of those birds to oh this is something we need to nurture in our community and care for. What the real journey here has also been is again different to some of the other states the nesting territories that we're working on a lot of them are on council land they're on, on beaches managed by council and it's been that journey of bringing along both council staff particularly compliance staff around dog management but also elected members to see the value of trying to keep a, a threatened bird population going and, and alive within their regions that's taken over 10 years one by law at a time one of the things we work towards is so they nest right on the beach they're exposed to high tides and all sorts of things like ravens and foxes and but one of the main threats over the last decade has been off-leash dogs as soon as a dog is off-leash it's sort of zigzagging all over the beach and that puts all the wildlife up on guard and it means the birds aren't looking after their nests and it leaves them open to predation so it's working with councils when the bird life approach has been to put up these temporary rope fences when there are eggs on the nest and also put up signage. What we've been working with the range of councils within the Adelaide and Flurio region is to actually when those signs are put out, it relates to the council's dog bylaws that you actually have to put your dog on a leash. And I think it has helped with that understanding. Can I ask what locals bring to this particular project? So you've had an increasing number of volunteers. What are those volunteers doing? Well, and again, this is the beauty of working with an NGO that understands how to run citizen science projects because you have to organise the people involved. So keeping an eye and monitoring what's happening on the beach with the birds. So once some nesting activity starts to get observed and the birds are getting ready to lay the eggs, then there are trained volunteers, birdlife trained volunteers, who have the okay then with local councils to either set up the fences or we work with council biodiversity teams or work crews to, who are trained not to disturb the birds to put up those fences as well. And then it just becomes an awareness program with the volunteers, with staff and council of trying to make people behave responsibly on the beach. And the interesting thing about this project is that it's actually connected to another project that you're doing, which is your work with beach habitat and threats to that. Within the conservation advice under the Environment Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act for hooded plumbers, the whole range of things that experts have identified you need to do. And one of the things we, we haven't really got around to yet, but we're now in a position to do is is look at how do we better manage these introduced grasses that are on our beaches. Some were introduced intentionally to stabilise sand dunes like marram grass. And others may have been introduced for that reason, but have just really got out of hand like seaweed grass. And they really changed the shape and the format of the dune. So they, these introduced grasses are very deep rooted. So they tend to build very steep dune fronts on the front of the beach. So you get these sort of steep embankments when you get storm surges and erosion and you get much more of the dune front eroded. So, I mean, this has been known to coastal geomorphologists. You know, they've been writing about this and the need to, to control it for, for a couple of decades, actually. And there's an impact on the fledgling plovers. Yeah, if the way that native grasses like spinifex, they, they tend to create a, a gentler sloping dune front that the birds can retreat up to. 
Whereas if they've got a, a sort of a, a sand dune cliff, particularly if there's cars on beaches, such as we have down areas of the southeast and other areas, then there's nowhere really for them to get out of the way. The other massive effort is the propagation of the spinifex to, to restore the sites or to gradually get back in there. But the other thing that the coastal officers have worked on is setting up coastal community nurseries. So we now help coordinate with local council three coastal community nurseries, one down on the Flurio, one in Metro and one up on the northern Adelaide Plains beaches. And the reason for that is that there's only, particularly working on coastal species, although a lot of the work we do, we contract in growers and seed collectors and propagators. But for commercial growers, they tend to focus on the sweetest species that are used in landscaping or restoration projects. But having the expertise of the volunteers working in the community nurseries, we can really f- focus on different types of habitat we're trying to restore. So previously, you know, the last couple of decades, we've been focused on trying to s- restore the lost coastal sedge lands, particularly of northern Adelaide. This is a problem that is too big for us to tackle. And that, again, relied very heavily on both some commercial growers, but the coastal community nurseries. And now for the Arplover Coast, these nurseries are able to propagate tens of thousands of spinifex seedlings. But what we are trying to do is have an impact on the areas where these beach nesting birds are nesting. It's that percentage increase that slowly over time will increase the, the fledgling rates, which, will, will, again, this project will take probably five years to 20 years to be successful. And so all of this demonstrates the importance of being flexible, using a combination of approaches, being proactive over reactive. Look, I think I'd love to reach a stage when I could be totally proactive, but we still are just reacting to the decades of of issues that we're coping with. To me, coastal systems are some of the most robust in the world. You know, they're dealing with these massive storm events and, and whatever. What's made them fragile? is human interference and human development and putting things in the wrong places. To just bring us back momentarily to the citizen science aspect of this work, shall we correct a bit of a a myth that citizen science means the project will be cheaper? It can be, but it depends what you're targeting. If the question is bigger, then you need better resourcing. And look, volunteer coordination and volunteer management is, is needs people on the ground. But even, even if it's not a dedicated citizen science project, coordinating both practitioners on the ground, like people in local government and the community, to, to my way of thinking, needs people on the ground. And the many reviews of Australian government funding programs have reiterated the value of having facilitators, having people on the ground. When you think about how most councils are structured in South Australia, their resourcing doesn't usually have the luxury of a coastal biodiversity expert or a coastal officer within a local council. That changes a bit in in more resourced councils, but they might be lucky to have a biodiversity team and biodiversity officers, but they don't have the budgets or or luxury of, of having dedicated coastal people to help their teams. You mentioned the Ghana people earlier. How are you foregrounding and incorporating First Nations people into this work? Because I can well imagine that they would have plenty to offer. So many local councils now are setting up have frameworks established to 
better connect with First Nations peoples within their council areas. The real challenge across coastal management is, is integrating sea country. That can be done in national parks through sea country ranges and those sorts of programs. And particularly now within the Adelaide area where we have a native title determination for the Ghana people. How do we really bring that partnership to fruition in, in coastal management? And that's the next um, thing that we, we really need to progress. So how do you keep the community engaged? Because it's not just about funding levels, is it? It's about time invested. <laughs> One of the biggest problems that, that we all have with our volunteer networks is they tick along for decades, but everyone's ageing in these groups and trying to attract new people into these groups. And maybe it's not Maybe it's not the way of the future. I mean, we do try and do a lot more sort of pop-up events where you don't need to be a member of a group. You just come and, and do these things. But that's, that might be good in people thinking they're, they're doing a good thing. But we could just bring a contractor in and do that. But it's making it... How do you make that connection? For me, I don't want necessarily people just planting plants in the ground. It's about going back to what the different cultures have. Is that connection with place and really trying to encourage our local coastal communities to have that connection with place. Right? What would help the Coast and Seas team and Green Adelaide into the future in, in, in terms of finding solutions, given that coastal restoration takes decades? To quote or paraphrase Aldo Leopold, the forestry conservator over in the United States, the important part of intelligent tinkering is saving all the parts. And even in an in a area as fragmented as major metropolitan coast like Adelaide, it's amazing how many little pieces are still left. Many are within council zoning and protected under conservation planning or, and zoning, but it's making sure how over the time we don't see the constant attrition both through adjacent development and, and just impacts that whittle down these little remnants that, the big task is how do you go about connecting them? You know, for some species like butterflies, because they can fly, and for bird species, you, you don't need everything matching up right to each patch into each other, but it's how do you work with the land into the future to get better connectivity? How do you document where things are and plan for them to stay or to keep being there? Local governments are now one of the mainstays of our coastal conservation heritage and, and legacy. What would it mean to get those lands and biodiversity assets onto the assets register? Well, well, it basically means that there's longer term budget cycle planning that's committed to do the works that's needed to keep that biodiversity going in a way that we won't lose those fragments from the landscape. And it goes back to when we started this conversation about that expertise we have in our coastal offices and the coastal community nurseries and the, the actual expertise that comes out of the community. And the trick here is making it intergenerational. So not just in terms of staff and having that knowledge continued into the next generation, but in terms of budget, but also in terms of the biodiversity itself to nourish it so that it does become a site that lives through generations. How do you make sure programs can continue over the timeframes that we need to restore the habitat? 
One case in point was back in the year 2000, you know, we realised we'd lost a butterfly species from the Adelaide Plains, the, a tiny little yellowish said skipper. And um, one of the, the organisations at the time put out a local recovery plan. But it, this butterfly relies on one species of coastal sedge, Garnier phylum or thatching grass that it lays its eggs on and the caterpillars feed on. And that coastal sedge habitat basically disappeared from most of northern Adelaide and, and this butterfly still exists over on the other York Peninsula, Air Peninsula and down the southeast. So it's taken 20 years really to be working with local councils and private landholders and even golf courses to restore these patches of sedge land to a point where we can now reintroduce these butterflies into the patches. So these things don't happen overnight. You know, we we're lucky there was a plan there that was built into our coastal action planning, which has served us well over the last decade, which we're now reviewing. But you need that planning, but you also need the ability to work across the years to recover habitat and then to look at reintroducing these little parts that we have lost. So the yellowish sedge skipper is, a, is really a flagship species for sedgeland restoration. Hooded plover is, is one for maintaining our, our sandy beaches and, and dune systems. We've got work on different reptile species like painted dragons. How do we work and get the community to understand the importance of coastal heath? And it's using these sort of individual animals as a bit of a flagship to, and it's not a it's not a new concept. Sometimes it can work. It helps if the the, the animals are slightly charismatic, but I, I think we'll get there in the end. What absolutely beautiful work you do, all for the sake of a butterfly or three, or a hooded plover, or a particular kind of dune grass. Tony Flaherty, thank you so much for joining us on Let's Talk Coast. That that's okay. Thank you very much, Gretchen. Tony Flaherty of the Coast and Seas team for Green Adelaide. I'm Gretchen Miller. This is Let's Talk Coast from the Australian Coastal Society. Catch you next time.